from the pages of Professional Investigator Magazine comes PI Magazine, the podcast. Join us each week for the latest in the world of the professional investigator. Exciting guests, new equipment, marketing tips, software, PI advice, and more. Learn what's new and exciting in PI Magazine, the podcast. Now let's join our hosts and the publishers of PI Magazine, Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli. And welcome, everybody, to this episode of PI Magazine, a podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nanos. We're broadcasting today from the PI Magazine podcast studios in southern New Jersey. Joining me this evening is my co-host and co-publisher, Nicole Cusinelli. Nick, how are you? Good. Do you, Jim? Uh, hanging in there, doing okay. A little bit of crappy weather today, but we're hanging in there. Working the board this evening is our friend, Detective Jack Russell. We've got a, a special show tonight. We wanted to do a show a little bit on some surveillance and some subcontracting, some issues that have come up recently. We've actually received a few questions on the podcast email asking us about subcontracting and the use of subcontractors and some considerations we should have uh, during, uh, during that process as professional investigators. So, Nick, who do we have on the show tonight? Tonight, we are, it's our pleasure to introduce George Gerges. George Gerges is employed as a principal investigator for Investigative Support Unit Incorporated in Northern Indiana since 2002. Mr. Gerges has been working as a private investigator since 1990 and has a wide range of experience with a variety of private sector cases. He also holds memberships with a variety of professional associations, including the Indiana Society of Professional Investigators, the National Association of Legal Investigators, the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, the Criminal Defense Investigation Training Council, National Defender Investigator Association, National Association of Public Defense, the Michigan Council of Professional Investigators, Intellinet, and the International Association of Auto Theft Investigators. That's a lot. So uh, it's pretty impressive, and we've actually broken bread with George on many occasions. We've had several cups of coffee, which I know is your favorite, George, and uh, it's our pleasure to introduce you to, to the podcast tonight. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Jim. Hi, Nicole. Uh, it's a pleasure being here. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. George, we're happy to have you on the show tonight, and just uh, I don't know if everyone knows this, but George and I are also members of uh, GAPIA. That's the uh, Greek American Professional <laughs> Investigators Association. It's something that I just made up a couple seconds ago, but uh, <laughs> George and I are founding members of GAPIA. I like it. You it like sounds that good. To... GAPIA. It sounds Greek too. GAPIA. GAPIA. <laughs> or Italian. George. We, we incorporate Greek logic. There you go. Do our investigations. George, yeah. tell us so, a little about your background because you do have a fascinating background. You've been around for a long time and, and you're probably one of the best surveillance guys I've ever met in my life. I've learned more from just talking to you over cups of coffee than, than most training I've had in my entire career. So tell us a little about your background. I, I appreciate that, Jim. You know, uh, I've been doing this for a, a, since 1990, a real long time. And I, uh, I was in the police academy, and while I was waiting for my slot to open up at the, the sheriff's office, I got a job uh, with an insurance surveillance uh, company that did mostly investigating insurance fraud, claims investigations. And I kind of stayed in that until uh, um, for the majority of the beginning of my career, that was what I did, is basically claims investigations, surveillance, and uh, insurance fraud. And I just kind of climbed the ladder working for various companies. And the, the funny part sometimes is that I never changed the company, but the companies were just like being bought and sold and getting bigger and bigger. And so you had a new employer every few years, but it was, you never like had to apply or go move around at all. So um, I ended up moving to uh, the South Bend, because I started my career in uh, Sunshine State, beautiful Florida, and uh, I ended up moving to South Bend, Indiana. And when you move from the warm weather to the cold weather, there's always uh, a reason, and and there's always a woman involved. So I got tricked, and I moved up here, and I've been married to that woman for almost 30 years now. So uh, and I'm we're just having a great time. You know, the Midwest is a great place to raise a family, a great place to have a career. 
you know, I, I'm just like uh, loving it. And I've been fortunate to do the work that I love to do, you know, in investigations. It's just, you know, it fits my personality and, and it uh, uh, fits, you know, what I like to do. So, you know, that's a little bit about me. And I've done any, any everything from every type of the private sector investigations that there is out there, except for I don't like doing executive protection. I think I only did that one time. Uh, but everything else I've done with uh, many, many, many hours of uh, uh, surveillance. So, George, when I think of surveillance uh, and I think of who's who's good at surveillance, there's a few people to come to mind, and, and you're right right at the top of the list there. What percentage of your cases or what percentage of the work that you do is actually real surveillance, physical surveillance? Well, in the past, it used to be a lot more. Um it used to be closer to like 60 or 70%, you know, actual surveillance. And in the beginning of my career, it was even more, it was more like 80 or 90%. Uh, but, you know, as you get older, your business changes a little bit, you know, we've had a little bit bigger staff. So, you know, my job, we do a lot more interviews. Now we do a lot more scene inspections. We do criminal defense cases, but uh, a lot of the companies that I worked for when I first started, were uh, servicing the insurance industry. And that is, you know, a majority of surveillance. So I would say at this point in my career, it's probably maybe 50-50, maybe a little less than 50 doing surveillance, me personally, but our agency probably does over 50%. Uh, But when I first started, it was closer to like 80 or 90%. Wow. So we've listed this show as, as a surveillance uh, related topic, but the principles I guess we're going to discuss tonight, whether it's surveillance or, or an interview, uh, the principles and, and some of the things you need to do and some considerations, I guess would work whether you're talking surveillance or, uh, or anything, a, an interview or whatever your tasking may be for somebody. So I wanted to chat a little bit about some things you need to consider or some things we need to speak about. If you have a surveillance and you either need an additional person to help you out with your surveillance because most of our listeners, and I know it is the case here in New Jersey, a high percentage of, of private investigators here in New Jersey are mom and pop shops. There's not a whole lot of folks out there with a whole cadre of investigators. There are several, but most of us are, are just one man show or maybe somebody with a support uh, role within your, your agency. But when you have that job where you need a second person or you need a third person, or you have to sub the job out because the surveillance is occurring maybe across the country or in another state, when you do that, George, or you have to do it, what are some of the things you need to take into consideration when you're looking for that person, whether that person's going to physically be with you as a second wheel, or it's somebody across the country who's covering a portion of your investigation? What do you need to consider? Yeah, that's that's a good question, uh, Jim. And it, many small PI agencies, and uh, even some of the larger ones, the, the the business cycle for investigations is like a roller coaster, and you can never have enough people staffed, even if you're employing people, uh, to cover those uh, peak times. So you're always almost you find yourself, no matter what size company you are, you're always thinking of uh, a subcontractor. Uh, somebody to bring a board to help and um, some companies even you know their whole practice relies on subcontractors and that's an important thing because that's how you would conduct your business I personally don't like using the word subcontractor because it's more of a general you're, you're, you're viewed upon more as a uh, general contractor. I like using the word freelance and I try to hire what I would consider freelance investigators. When you, when you hire somebody as a freelance investigator or a subcontractor, the first thing you got to consider is how you're going to pay them. Um, it's a 1099 uh, employment or subcontract agreement. A 1099 is the IRS form that you just pay somebody a one flat rate and they're responsible for their taxes. They're responsible for their workers comp insurance. They're responsible so that, uh, for uh, making sure that the government is happy from what you pay them. And then um, the other thing you've got to consider 
is when you hire somebody as a 1099 employee, that's usually between you, the labor board, and the IRS and the, and the people making the agreement. Then the second thing you've got to consider is the licensing for that particular state that you're hiring that individual. Does that person, is it, can you, first of all, hire a 1099 contractor to, can you employ them under your license without them being licensed? So that determines what pool of, the, of people that you would be able to. And that's, you know, checking with your state laws, making sure that you're compliant. The other thing that you want to consider is your insurance. Uh, who's covering the, if something goes wrong on, on the case, God forbid, whose insurance is covering that? Uh, if your subcontractor has insurance, they're going to go to your subcontractor. But just like if you bring somebody to work on your roof at your house and you're paying them cash and they fall off, they're going to end up suing the homeowner. It's the same type of principle here is when you have a subcontractor and, and something goes wrong and they don't, and they're underinsured or they're not insured, the, you're the one that's going to be holding the bag with any, any type of liability. So you have to take, those are the, the basic business principles that you have to take into consideration is, you know, how are you going to pay them? Uh, the agreement that you have with them and the insurance relationship that you, that you have. Sometimes uh, they have enough insurance where you don't have to list them as under your insurance. Sometimes you have to like pay a little bit extra and get um, uh, an additional insured on uh, as the subcontractor. There are some people that actually hire um, uh, subcontractors. They want, the employed the agency that's employing you to be listed as an additional insured on the subcontractor's insurance, and that's fine. But don't we can't forget that every time we do that, there's a cost. So there has to be a, a cost associated with whatever whatever your agreement is. That kind of like determines what kind of rate structure you have with that the freelancer or subcontractor. You know, George, you, you um, just about covered everything on our list that we were going to talk about tonight, <laughs> right, right there. Yeah, but I, I just wanted to to break down a couple of the, of the I'm going to say what I think would be the more important issues that you just touched on, and and let's start with most of us would probably because we're talking short term use of somebody, whether it's just for a a short term surveillance or you're tasking somebody to go out and do some interviews in another part of the country. If you're going to use a 1099 or you're going to you're going to try to use that person as a 1099, make sure you as a business owner are familiar with what the requirements are to be able to actually be a 1099. You can't just make everyone a 1099. There's specific government regulations with the IRS and your tax professional or your accountant should really be, you should consult with that person and say, what do I need to do to be able to use this person as a 1099? because they may fall into that employee category where they may not qualify to be a 1099. So make sure you do your homework and, and make sure that you understand what a 1099 is and what, what is needed to, to be qualified as a 1099 rather than an employee, because it's not as clear cut as most people would think. I know a lot of PIs that just, well, he's just a 1099. I'll just pay him, you know, check. Well, that person may technically under IRS standards, not qualify to be a 1099. So make sure you know what you're talking about. If you're going to, try to bring somebody on as a 1099. Second point I wanted to bring up was the licensing. And it's so important. We're in New Jersey here and you just can't, you just can't bring somebody on board and say they're working under my license. There's a procedure in our state and I'm assuming it's probably similar in most states where you have to make sure that you notify the regulatory agency. In our case, it's New Jersey state police that you're bringing somebody on board in your agency to work under your license. If that, person, if he or she is not licensed directly themselves, and you're going to bring them into your agency to work a job for you, you're going to have to go through some hoops to get that person covered under your license. And it's, it's, it's so important that you do that because if something goes wrong or, you know, down the line someplace, a deposition or a court hearing, and, and you have to testify and you, you know, it comes out that that person is technically not properly licensed or properly working under your license, it potentially could be a big problem for you. So you have to make sure that you know all this well in advance. And the time to do that is well in advance of, you know, scheduling that job. You don't want to try to do that on a Friday when the job's Saturday morning. I mean, set this all up ahead of time if you anticipate using folks either as a 1099 or as a direct employee or a, a, a short-term employee 
find out what you need to do to, to make sure that person is covered. It's, it's so important. And finally, I wanted to say, don't just assume that somebody is licensed. If you contact somebody in another state, and you're going to use them for, for a job in, in another state to cover a portion of your investigation. Let, let's make sure that they are actually licensed. And, and I would really recommend telling them I need a copy of your license and I need a copy of your insurance or your bond or both to make sure that you're covered. Don't just take that person for their word. Get that. You're going to need that. You're probably going to need it for discovery at some point anyway. So you might as well get it while you can and, and put it in your file. Any, any thoughts on any of those, those subjects there, George? No, I think you're right on. I, and I think uh, the one of the points that you touched on uh, a little bit is the time to prepare. If you have a business and, you, and you're thinking of growing, subcontract work and employing people as subcontractors is a viable business model. And if that's something you're going to do, this is the time before the work comes in to prepare yourself and your agency to check with your insurance company what do you got to do if you were bring in subcontractors check with your accountant like you said you know make sure that you know the, the if you have a contract we have a one-page contract whether i get employed i'll send that in or i'll send uh i'll send the people that we hire as a freelancers to to sign the, the contract and, and with the contracts that we have, you know, it requires them to send us their insurance, their license, um, and their uh, their resume. So we have that as part of their vendor package. And I'm more than happy to, you know, I have that like uh, ready to go anytime anybody asks me our license insurances, our, our my resume, and our, and our rate sheets. Uh, and depending on, you know, how much you ask of that freelancer, uh, that will depend on, on your rate you know, what, what you do in, um, the stuff that we, that we subcontract to other States. And this is, we, you know, I'm, uh, it's an Indiana based case the majority of the time. And when we hire somebody to do, let's say somebody moved from, from Indiana and they moved down to Florida or they moved to California and we have to do uh, surveillance over there, even, even though the person, the subject that we're uh, investigating is in another state, the, uh, the case is here in Indiana, and one of the things that I've done is I've I've required our subcontractors to become associate members or affiliate members of our state association, because even though they may not have uh, licensing oversight in Indiana, there is a civilian oversight, an Indiana-based civilian oversight of that person doing our Indiana case in the state of Florida or in the state of Texas or or something of, of that nature. So. Uh, and somebody that's willing to do that uh, shows me that they're professional, that they uh, abide by the ethical guidelines that we have in our association, uh, that they meet the qualifications to become members. That means, you know, they because uh, some, some states don't even have licenses. Uh, but, you know, to become a member, you have to have a, a clean criminal record. They have to have a, um, insurance. You're, you have to follow certain ethical guidelines. So uh, that's one of the first, if I don't know you at all, that's one of the first things that I request. And even if I know you, I still ask you to, to join um, our uh, state association. So there is some civilian, you know, local oversight over the work product that you're putting out there. That's beyond, that's bigger than just the, your employer. It's, it's uh, a, a state affiliated agency. So, George, that leads me into uh, the next question. Now, Jim and I know that you probably know tons of PIs. I've seen you pretty much at every conference we've been to, and I know that you have a lot of connections and contacts and have probably done a ton of working of networking. But what would you suggest for uh, the PI that has to subcontract a, a case or a job, whether it's locally or out of state, where would you suggest that they start in the selection process of of that person to uh, to perform that job with the agency? Would they go to through the association of that state, or what would you recommend? Well, you would want to have you would no matter how, how you get it, you want to have somebody that has some kind of ethical that could document that they have uh, a procedure of like they have an ethical procedure that they're going to follow, not 
you know, whether they have, you know, an, an oversight by an association is great. Um, but before you pick a, uh, somebody to actually work your case, what you have to really determine from a business perspective is the fee schedule. And is it, first of all, you know, like many attorneys, uh, and I'm just going to compare it to attorneys, uh, an attorney, you know, charges a, uh, a fee plus expenses. And that's typically how we do it as PIs. We charge a fee and expenses. Now, when you hire a subcontractor, um, are you going to be making money off of that subcontractor, uh, which is the majority of the time is what it is. And it's very ethical to where when you hire somebody and they charge you investigative fees, this is what we sell as investigators to be able to make a profit off of the investigative fees. So that's the, that's the fir- that's the first thing that you're going to have to like look at. Are you going to just and the majority of the time when you're doing surveillance, the company that's hiring you to do surveillance is going to want to make a profit off of you. But there are some more specialty subcontract work. For example, if you're hiring somebody to do a, a debugging, which you know is is pretty expensive, or cellular forensics or accident reconstruction, sometimes. Uh, you're not going to get somebody that you're going to be making a money off of where you're just going to like refer them or you bring them in and you make it, you make a small portion uh, of it. So what you hire to do subcontract work, what product or service that you're selling, you have to uh, keep that in mind. You know, what's, how are you going to make a profit off of it and how are you going to bill it? So that's like the, the first thing. And then when you decide that you're going to hire somebody, is that person that you're going to hire, is it somebody that has an agency or a business model that allows them to be subcontracted? Because there's a lot of agencies that are set up in a way where even if it's a one or two man shop, the expenses for that agency are, are in such a way that you, you can't, you're not going to make any money off of, off of them. So, if you're surveillance, for example, you know, when we do surveillance, we charge $130 an hour. Uh, if I can't hire another agency and say, I'm, you know, it's $130 an hour and, you know, what, what's the point? Why am I getting involved? Why am I putting my name on it? So you would have to hire people that are geared towards, and there's, you know, thousands of people that they don't want and they don't want to deal with the business end of investigations. They just want to do investigations. They just want to do surveillance. And those are the people that practice in that fashion. Those are the ones that you have to find if you're going to charge a fee on top of their fee. Uh, so and there's um, the associations, you know, uh, that are great, especially the state associations. Unfortunately, a lot of people uh, because they are small and they are doing uh, subcontract work, sometimes they don't. They think you know the minimum fee to become a member of an association. They look upon it like, oh, it's a lot of money. But that that would get their name out and that would get them some recognition. And it makes me comfortable as somebody that hires subcontractors that hey, I feel comfortable hiring this person. So anytime I hire somebody, I kind of force them to be a member of their state association. And if they're not, you know, probably, if they're not willing to invest a little bit in themselves, um, I don't think I want to invest in hiring that person either. So let me give you just a really basic example. I'm in New Jersey, and I need a uh, PI in Florida. But I, I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone through networking or anyone I can call to suggest someone, where would I start knowing no one in Florida to, to find the correct uh, either agency or, or PI for that job? Where would I, where would I, where would I begin? Well, let's, let's for sake of argument, say you wanted to do surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, first you would call the people that you do know because word of mouth recommendations from people that, you know, those are the most powerful. So when you call somebody and you say, hey, um, I got your name from so-and-so, uh, I understand you do that. And somebody that's had some experience with that individual, I get calls all the time. I know a lot of people, and I get calls 
from all over the all over the country and they say hey i need somebody in missouri or i need somebody in texas i need somebody in florida because i've dealt with so many people like right. you said i'm able to like you know throw out a name so um if i didn't know anybody i would tell you the next the you know there's there's like the like bailey that's a great association uh the people that are there are vetted they're they know their stuff. Uh, trying to make um, a certain percentage, that might be a little bit hard because a lot of them have their own businesses. They're, they're, they're solid businesses. Um, sometimes and there's been like a big phenomena that's over the last decade with like listservs on um, a variety of listservs. People just post their jobs almost like um, like like trucking companies, like logistic companies, where they'll ship, they'll say, "I got a shipment." You know, a lot of uh, of these websites you know, or and uh, listservs will put on, "Oh, I got a two-day surveillance. Anybody want to help?" Any, if you're using the listserv of an association, at least you know that those people have been vetted. There are some, you know, generic listservs that you know that just post, they just post the jobs. So that's not a bad way of getting uh, some work, but you just never know what you're going to get. Sometimes there's also social media groups that go up there and, and again, you don't know what you're going to get. So what it comes down to, if you get somebody that's interested in your job, the first thing you do is ask them for their insurance, their license and their resume and see what it comes, how it comes across. And right. sometimes that eliminates half the people that contact you because they, if, and if they can't put together, you know, a resume or if they can't put together a quick introduction letter to let you know that you're going to run into problems. And I'm not saying this because uh, it's something that always happens. I'm saying this from experience that this has happened to me that, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to give this guy a shot. He sounds like a new guy, but then I, you know, you call him up and he says, I couldn't find the address. I go, okay, did you check the, you know, on a surveillance? I, I had literally had a person who charged me five hours to sit in town waiting for somebody's car to drive by because they couldn't find the address. And I found the address on Google wow. uh, uh, Maps. So, um, you know, so, so you, you have to, you know, you, you live and you learn and, and you, you have like a certain procedures. And then there's a, there's a contract, you know, just you have to make sure you solidify your relationship. And what we didn't talk about, and I think is one of the most important things, is uh, the confidentiality agreements that, that go into the contract. And that's a, a separate agreement that I have with everyone. That's, you know, everything that they are exposed to, all the information, that information still belongs to the hiring agency. You know, they cannot... They, they can't solicit your clients. Um, they can't utilize that information, and they have to make themselves available to testify in court. You know when the time comes. Obviously, you're going to pay them for the, for their time in court, but you have, you have to. If people have to uh, be able to agree to those basics uh, before you even consider hiring them. All right, that's some great advice, and uh, it, it sort of brings us back as Jim and I have always said, and, and we continue to encourage uh, an EPI to always join their association, especially the uh, the ones like NALI, because in a sense, that's already, the vetting's already done if you belong to a reputable association. Do you agree, Jim? Absolutely. Right. George, we're going we're yeah, to take a quick break. Things. We're going to hop out and take a quick break, and we're going to come back, and I want to touch a little bit, speak a little bit more about maybe when you're doing that vetting in person, when you're speaking to the person on the phone, a potential 1099 or somebody you're going to use on a job, maybe some of the questions you want to ask them. So everybody hang on. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by PI Magazine, the most respected voice of the professional investigator featuring stories and articles on current topics, equipment reviews, marketing tips, and investigative advice for the professional investigator. Don't miss a single issue of PI Magazine. Visit PIMagazine.com and subscribe today. 
PI directory, the go-to directory for the professional investigator. List your agency today and detail your investigative specialties and coverage areas. PIdirectory.com. Get your listing today. Go to PIdirectory.com. PI Gear. For all your professional investigator equipment needs, go to PIgear.com. Professional grade equipment and advice for real surveillance experts and professional investigators. Visit PIgear.com. PI Gear, where the pros shop. Now back to our host, Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli. And welcome back, everybody, to PI Magazine and Podcast. We're speaking with George Gerges this evening about surveillance and the use of subcontractors in some of your uh, your jobs. So, George, when we, when we left off, we were talking about, Nicole brought up, you know, some of the areas where you can actually try to find people that you potentially could be using on jobs. And, and you had mentioned, you know, vetting somebody by checking to see if they're members of, of a state association. And, and that's something I immediately do. I go the same route as, as you suggested, all word of mouth and people that my friends and other people have already used if they give me a recommendation. But I, I have a couple things that I always follow up with uh, when I'm looking at potential uh, people I'm going to use on jobs. I always ask them, as we spoke about, are you a member of any associations? How long you've been a member of the associations? I find that so important because, as you said earlier, if the person's willing to invest in their own business by joining an association, it shows that they're they're professional and they're spending money uh, to to forward or to advance their career and, and their business. So I find it extremely important to find if somebody's a member of an association, and in addition to state associations, national associations. We know, you know, membership isn't cheap and you, you become a member of six or seven associations and it becomes, re- it's real money. I mean, it's not just a hundred dollars. It's, you know, several hundred dollars or several thousands of dollars to maintain memberships and, and, you know, go to them training in the conferences. Uh, some of the other things I really like to ask when I'm speaking to somebody on the phone, and I, I think it's so important to, you know, make that phone call and have that discussion with the person is I, I love to know, you know, what their work experience is. How long have they been a PI? What what do they specialize in if there's a specialty? Ask them what they've done before they're a PI. Most of us, this is a second career for us. Um, so I, I want to find out, were they prior law enforcement, prior military? What did you do on the job if you were a police officer? What your experience was as, as a, in the military? Uh, they're all important questions you need to ask. And uh, I also always ask my potential folks that I'm going to use, will you send me a copy of a written report that you've done and a sample of maybe some surveillance video, if it's a surveillance. And I understand there's always confidentiality issues, but most folks will have that in, in their, you know, their resume or portfolio. They'll have a redacted version of a report or a sanitized version. Um, they'll also have something video wise that they can send you. That'll, that'll show you a sample of their work. I find that extremely important. I want to see what their product looks like. I want to see how they handle themselves. Uh, do you find that sort of thing useful, George? Do you do any of that when you're screening potential folks to work on cases? Yeah, it's it, it's something that, you know, it's not, it's not unusual for people to ask you for a report or for you to ask for, like, a sample report. Uh, it's not a make-or-break case. I've been doing this for such a long time. Is The conversation that I have with the person that I'm hiring or the person that wants to hire me, that is probably more important than anything else. I probably, you know, sniff out some BS within like 13 seconds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one, one of the things that has happened in the last 20 years that, you know, it's, and it's happened so fast that we have to keep up with is the technology. The te- you know, when I first started my career, they didn't even have the Internet. And now, you know, we had you know, tapes, there's no such thing as, as uh, videotapes anymore in what we do. So the keeping up with the technology and asking somebody, you know, how are you going to get the video to me if you get video or what kind of equipment do you have? Now, I already know I ha- I'm set up if, to provide drop links and to provide everybody to make it as easy as possible for that individual. And, but having those kind of questions like uh, does your video have time and date stamp on it? And at least, you know, they, they, they solved that technological issue. I've had people literally, you know, call me and complain that they hired somebody and they didn't even have a, a video camera when they went out to do surveillance They were using, they got cell phone video and you hear horror stories like that all the time. Um, 
So you have to make sure that they have the equipment. And, you know, just when you start talking to them, what kind of equipment do you have? And then what kind of vehicle do you use on surveillance? Or, and, and you can't be insulting to people by trying to demean them or anything of, of that nature. But they're the ones that they, there's a lot of people that claim that they could do surveillance or done a little bit of surveillance, for example, or there's, they, could, they claim that they do accident you know, uh, investigations and they've done a little bit of that, but you know, if they're humble enough to tell you that, Hey, I haven't done this enough. I don't know if this is going to work out. You could actually, if the person is ethical and he's uh, a decent person, you can probably help that individual, you know, move into a a higher degree or higher uh, skill level by assisting them. But you try to stay away from anybody who's like telling you, you know, anything that you smell bad, and it's like, okay, I, I'm not sure I'm going to, like, use this. And sometimes it's the rate. Sometimes when you say, hey, how much are you going to charge me? And they t- give you such a low rate, you're, like, thinking, whoa. <laughs> or, and, and exactly the opposite, too. If they give you such a high rate, you're like, what? Um, so in the conversations, we know enough about the business just trying to, like, determine what they know. And um, many times I'll have uh, on our website, we have an ability to where they can send us documents and stuff. And, you know, we have a case management system. And before we even uh, hire them, we ask them to like send us the information because we want to make sure that they're able to use a computer, that they're able to like send something. And you can kind of tell how a person articulates themselves just by an email or a cover letter, what they what they say, but you kind of like talk a thing to like hire somebody for because this basically the structure is a summary and a log, and you talk to them. What are you going to put in your summary? What you know? How are you going to do it? Um, and kind of go from there and, and see what they tell you, and then what do they look for? You know, when you're doing. You know, when we do surveillance, there's a variety of, of things, we, the purpose we do the surveillance. Um, is it bodily injury? Is it child custody? Is it for the protection of uh, loss of life or the protection of property? You know, what, what's the purpose of that surveillance? And when you're hiring somebody that does, even though they may have a lot of experience doing surveillance, maybe claims-oriented claims, uh, surveillance, but don't really have a lot of uh, experience doing child custody surveillance or they don't have a lot of experience doing um, uh, surveillance for the protection of, uh, of property or so there's other things you look for, you know, what's the, what's the important thing you look for. So you, you kind of like quiz them a little bit in those conversations. When you, when you do this, do you know what to look for? And if you don't, that's fine because if the guy is, talented, he or she is talented enough to do the surveillance and they've done hours and hours of, you know, years of experience of surveillance, just because you're adjusting it, you got to give them a little bit of guidance. And while having those conversations, you can kind of make a determination whether this guy is flexible enough to actually do the job for you or not. Um, And it may not be, you know, just because the person you don't hire that person for that particular job doesn't mean he's a bad or a good investigator. It may not just that job may not be for him. And that's one of the things that we do as business owners, as uh, managers of investigative units is pick the right person for the right job. Um, And you do that, you know, that that's what we do. That's what we've been doing for years. So after so many years of, of hiring people, training people, um, and reviewing people's reports, you kind of have a, a sixth sense almost, you know, is this person right for the job? Sometimes you're wrong, but the, the majority of the time we do a good job. And let's not forget too, when you hire somebody, you know, you have an obligation to your client to hire somebody that knows what they're doing because, you know, you're getting paid. This is, this is not, uh, you know, social services. This is a commercial venture. You're getting paid from your client. Uh, and the service that you're selling is that contractor, that guy's time, that guy's uh, skill. So you you have an obligation when you're hiring somebody to make sure that they have the skill level at the at the level that you're selling it to your client and what your client expects 
you, you to do. You know, George, I, I find when I'm speaking to a potential person, I'm going to bring on board for a case. I, I find the, I'm going to use the word interview and that might be a poor choice of words, but when I'm, I'm basically interviewing that potential, that other PI on the phone um, or in person, I, I'm always hesitant and leery about the person that does everything, the jack of all trades. Most of us have, you know, a specialty or two and we, we tend to stay in our lane and, and I'm a firm believer. Sometimes it's better. You know, my saying is it's better. Sometimes it's better to know a guy than to be a guy. You can't be everything. So, you know, when you're talking to that, that potential person and they tell you, Oh yeah, my, my skill set includes accident investigation, arson investigation, child custody matters, surveillance, debugging, you know, small engine repair and taxidermy. They throw everything in there. You know, that's, that's the person, you know, maybe that's not the best fit for you. Uh, I, I really like when you're speaking to somebody and they say, well, I'm not really good at, you know, sur- I, I didn't know you were looking for a surveillance technician. That's really not my, my thing. I'm, I do this or I do that. The person's being truthful with you. You got to be cautious about the person that sort of does everything uh, because maybe that person is, you know, the jack of all trades may not be the best fit for your job. Uh, I know there's a lot of PIs out there that, that for lack of a better term, I guess are generalists that, that sort of, you know, they, they, they do a little bit of everything. And I think most of us all do a little bit of everything, but I'm, I'm, I'm really always looking as a subcontractor. I'm looking for the guy or the girl that specializes in or has an incredible knowledge and background in that specific tasking that I'm looking for. If I'm doing a surveillance job, it's no, it doesn't do me any good to call the person who has on their website that they're an arson investigator. Yet I, I know people that simply shop around looking for the dollar. Where can I find the cheapest person to do this task for me? And that's maybe not the best fit. You should always look for quality first before you start thinking about, is is it worth the money? Um, always make sure that person is qualified and has the experience to cover the detail um, that, you're, that you're looking for. The other area I want to touch on real quickly was, and you mentioned it a little earlier, and it's, it's so important. Don't assume, and again, we're using the surveillance as the example for the discussion, don't just assume that if you call somebody up that he or she has the same equipment that you have or they have the same knowledge of the equipment. As you said, the time, date, and stamping is such a, such a big issue. So I, I always ask the person, what sort of equipment do you have and what will you be using on this job? And, and it's important to make sure that he or she has the proper equipment. I've done jobs where I've subbed it out and the person says, oh, I don't have a handy cam. I'll use my cell phone camera, as you illustrated earlier. And, and that's probably not the right yeah. person to, to hire uh, or to use for that job. And I've had those situations where he or she has told me that I'm going to use a cell phone camera because no one will, no one will be suspicious of a cell phone camera. That's not the right piece of equipment for this job. And, and that often tells is a tell when somebody gives you that as an example. And, and cell phone one is the one that pops up right, right away to me because I've had that actually happen to me when I speak to somebody and I ask them what sort of handy camera are you using? Cause I want to know if it's going to do time date and stamp or do we have to add it after the fact or after the fact through a, a third party software, more documentation in the report. And he or she says I'm using a cell phone. So it's, it's so important to make sure that that person he or she is, is familiar with and is, is equipped to the level that you're going to want them to be equipped to do your job. You know, I get that call sometimes when they want, you know, people asking what, because a lot of times hidden cameras too, you follow somebody inside, what are you going to use? And, you know, my go-to line, and I'm sure you're going to like this, Jim, is, you know, we spend thousands of dollars with PI gear. Just, we have a, a whole drawer full of like hidden cameras that we use. So that's that's something that we make our, our, our clients feel comfortable that and sometimes even when they come into the office, we'll show them if we're doing something like a, like a, like a, child custody and we'll show them the, the different cameras that uh, you know are available from uh, PI gear that we just use you know and that's just the hidden stuff and that seems to be like the sexy stuff that everybody's like oh what are you going to do when they go into Walmart or when they go into uh, right. a bar or a restaurant or something like that and um, you know so nowadays like we talked about with technology there's no excuse not to have a hidden camera you know, there's no excuse not to have like two or three hidden cameras, you know, the, the ability to, to get that. If you're a professional investigator um, and you don't have a hidden camera or you don't have a night vision camera, it's like you're opening up a pizza place and you, you're using a toaster oven. You don't have a pizza oven, like right? a commercial, uh, yeah, you have pizza oven, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, 
so you're, you're, you're selling yourself as a professional investigator, make sure you have the equipment to do it, you know? Um, and then there's, and, and the way to get equipment nowadays is so easy. Everything, you know, with the internet, with the shipments and everything, it, it, there's no excuse. You know, in the past, maybe you would say, hey, there wasn't, because I remember doing this in the 90s and the spy cams, you had to like, you know, wrap them around your, your waist and carry a backpack and all this stuff just to get a pinhole uh, to a, a camera, you know, through your shirts. But, uh, and if there wasn't a spy shop nearby where you would go and you would see what you're spending and it was like thousands and thousands of dollars. Now for a few hundred dollars, you know, you get something shipped to you and if it doesn't, it doesn't work out or even if it works out for one job, you have it for the next job, you know, you get another piece of equipment and you can, keep buying equipment uh, for specific jobs if you had to. And we charge enough as, an, as uh, professional investigators where we can keep doing that if we, if we had to. Don't, it's like being a carpenter and, you know, you don't want to buy a roof hammer because, you, you know, it's $40 compared to like a $20 hammer. You're a professional. Use professional-grade equipment. Now, George, as a, as a PI, you have an obligation to your client ultimately – and while you can never guarantee the results of an investigation, how important is it? Or give us your thoughts on the communication with the subcontractor. So let's say a job might, it might last six months. How do you keep track or make sure that this investigation is going in the right direction rather than find out in six months that it, it wasn't being conducted the way that it was expected? I mean, I would think that's really important that communication process between you and that PI to make sure things are flowing and, uh, and there's no assumptions and that the, the, the uh, investigation is going in the right direction. That's being properly conducted. Six months. I, I want to know like every six hours what's going on. Right. You wouldn't <laughs> let it go. You wouldn't. No, I'm never. talking about the communication right. process. What, right. what, what are your thoughts or your comments about or suggestions on how to maintain good communication and to make sure that, uh, Again, the, the investigation is going in, in the direction that you want it to for your client. Yeah, the more you know the person, the more you've worked with them, the more you trust them, the more you know leeway or more rope you give them. Um, and the more comfortable you get with a person, obviously, if, if I don't hear, if I have a subcontractor and they're doing a surveillance for me and I don't hear from them, I've worked with the person so, you know, for, for years, I know I'll get an update at the end of the day. And no news is good news kind of scenario. If I don't know the person, uh, I still want to know, you know, give me a, give me a half a day update. Uh, let me know what's going on or I'll may call them and see, Hey, uh, what's going on? What, what vehicles are there in the morning just to make sure that they are there. Uh, um, things, things of that nature. But when we contract somebody, when we hire a freelancer, the person that, doing the hiring, the employee, the, the employing agency, they're, we're still the case managers. We control the case. We have to have a, a, a clear directive to our subcontractors how they're going to get that uh, information and how they're going to get the updates to us. Sometimes, you know, you can't just, you can't be like ridiculous uh, with people, oh, give me a call every half hour or, you know, text me or, or whatever. But if you're comfortable with the guy, the professional, you know, a daily update is not an unreasonable thing. Sometimes if, if something goes wrong, the person should know that, hey, something went wrong. I need to know, I need, I need a heads up before my client finds out because so I'm, I'm handling the, the client end of it. You are in control of the case of the employing agency. However, um, we may, for for example, a surveillance, we pick the target of the surveillance, we pick the, the goals of the surveillance, but tactically, the person that you're hiring, you know, they are they are tactically in charge of what's happening in the field. You, you there is a limitation to what you're going to, especially a contractor, and that's when we go back again. We talked about. Uh, uh, does the employment agency or does the, your, uh, sorry, does the, does the um, state empl employment agency or the IRS consider them to be a contractor or an employee? One of those things is how much leeway you give that individual. But I don't care if 
he's employed directly for me as an employee or he or she is a contractor, when they investigate it, when you hire a professional to do a job in the field, they are, in my opinion, tactically in control. It's their, that's why we're paying investigators to make those decisions in the field. Right. So you, you, have to, you have to let them, you have to give them some rope. If you don't trust their decisions, and you don't hire them. Right. Uh, so, and when you, expe- when you expect an update at the end of the day, I expect an update. Um, if, if they want to call in, you know, they want to email it to me, however, whatever parameters we have, if there's a problem, I want to call right away. I want to know about it. And when I hear something before the end of the day, it's usually because there is something that went out of the ordinary, something that, you know, whether they're doing surveillance and they lost somebody or they're doing surveillance and they got burnt or the person doesn't live there anymore and they found something out, I, you know, I, uh, I get a call earlier in the day. If everything is going fine, I mean, I get a call to the, uh, the end of the afternoon or first thing in the morning or you get an email or uh, the way that we have our case management system, sometimes it's already updated and they'll send me an email and they'll say, hey, I have my notes in the case management, uh, let me know if you have any questions, um, because it's nothing, you know, it's just another day at the office, you know, something, you know, they got a little bit of video, they followed the person around, they, you know, everything went smooth. There's really no reason for them to like call me and, and tie up their time and my time on the phone. If they can just do it quickly and their notes already updated. Right. Um, uh, new people, I like to have more verbal communication with them. Uh, because I want to be able to get to the point where you're, you're building up that trust. And, um, you know, we, I, we do use the, the American consumer method. You use somebody, if you're not happy, you just don't use them again. You know? Exactly. Uh, and you're only as good as your last case, you know. Uh, how people communicate with you, especially in the investigation um industry as, as a professional investigator how they communicate with you is important because ultimately that's what we do that we communicate our findings you know as investigators we have to um identify information we have to gather information and we have to document the information and then we have to communicate that to uh in legal proceedings those are the four things that those are our basic skills that we must have as, as professional investigators. And if they're having a hard time, you know, uh, calling you or, you know, you ask them a direct question and they're giving you, you know, you ask them, Hey, did you see the guy today? And then they start talking about something else. It, you know, we've been doing, we're, we're detectives. We know if somebody's lying to us right. and we could suspect that kind of stuff. You know, it's, um, you know, when somebody sends in a, a, a video and you don't see the sun move, you know, the, the shadow move for like four hours, you know, the guy wasn't there. Right. This isn't our first rodeo. I'm sure, I'm sure you both got some um, stories, right? Yeah. I imagine. Um, George, we're going to, we're going to wind down the episode now. And before we close though, any closing thoughts, anything you want to, any words of wisdom? I mean, this has been great. And I, I love chatting with you because I, I learn every time we talk, I learn something from you. Uh, even if you don't mean to tell me or well, teach I, me, I, I learn it. something. But any any closing <laughs> thoughts to our listeners or anything you want to speak about? Oh, the, the only thing that I, I, I think is uh, what we have to take into consideration, too, as people that get hired as subcontractors, the hiring agency. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, what you look for for a subcontractor, but what does a subcontractor look for the hiring agency? You know, your rate to make sure that, you know, you're not just, uh, depending on the, how you're doing your business, you know, what expenses you have in it and how close to a client ready product you have, the closer you get the, your, your product and service to a client ready, the higher demand you could have for your rate. Um, and then just keep in mind that, you know, if somebody's paying you a certain amount that, and you're a subcontractor, are you a, a hybrid, almost like a hybrid relationship with that, uh, with that vendor? So if you're getting paid, let's say $50 an hour, um, 
there's a certain percentage that you're going to have to pay in taxes and there's a certain percentage that you're going to have to have in expenses. So even though you're claiming you're making $50 an hour, you're probably making more of a, a, a salary. You don't get to keep all that. So you have to like know that. And the other thing with the hiring agencies is, you know, have a, make sure you know when they're going to pay you because if you are not ultimately dealing with the end client, it's not your responsibility to collect from the insurance company or from their end client. It's the hiring agencies. Part of the reason they get paid a little bit more than you is because it's their responsibility to get paid. That's a great you point. You need to have a clear, a clear, concise um, uh, agreement. I'm going to get paid in a week or I'm going to get paid in 30 days. Standard, a, a subcontractor should never have to wait more than 30 days. And right. 30 days is on the high end. Um, the people that hire a lot of subcontractors know that the faster you pay your subcontractors, the more available they are for you. Um, so that's something that you want to do. One thing I do like about um, the list search is not only do you find out who is good, who, who may be doing uh, subcontract work, <clears throat> it's, it's a tool that if you're a hiring agency and you screwed over some people, <laughs> no, people will list you and you will have a reputation. And right. there's a mistake that a lot of people make that the reputation of the business is known by your clients, but the reputation of the business really comes from your employees. If you could, I'll bring back the pizza place again, you know, the vendors that serve that and the employees, they'll leave one business and they'll go to another business and they'll say, <clears throat> excuse me, they'll say, oh, that guy's kitchen is dirty or that you should see what he does to his food. That's how, especially if you're using subcontractors, they'll go from one business to another <clears throat> and they'll go and they'll say, oh, that guy treated me really bad. That guy treated me really good. That guy treated me. And you build a reputation as a hiring agency. So that's something that, um, to keep in mind when you're hiring people too. You just can't treat people badly. Right. And George, I got to ask you this. Is it gyro or gyro? Gyros. <laughs> Gyros. Okay. And, and George, how about a, a plug for your business and a plug for your website or, or who you're working for? How, how can our listeners get in contact well, with you if they want to research you or through LinkedIn or whatever? Uh, yeah. Well, the, com the name of our company is Investigative Support Unit, isu-net.com or investigativesupports.net. We're out of South Bend, Indiana. We, we cover Indiana. We cover Illinois. We cover Michigan. We covered a whole Midwest. Um, we just applied for a licensing in Florida, so we'll have an agency license in Florida within the next uh, few months. Um, so if anybody wants or needs anything here, we're, you know, we they find us just a quick Google search, South Bend Investigators Investigative Support Unit. I'm sure we'll pop up. Um, be more than happy to ha ha help them out. Also, one thing, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about associations. And what uh, um, I, I didn't mention is, you know, you said I was a member of INSPI, the Indiana Society of Professionalists, but I I'm also was elected president last year, you know, and I've been kind of like leading uh, the association. So we have a lot of good members. Uh, and I think if uh, anybody was uh, interested in getting some information, one of the things that we did was put together a guide uh, with standards, quality standards, and uh, which could be found on IndianaInvestigators.com. And I think that uh, I think we sent you a book. Didn't, didn't we send it to you guys? You did. Um, you did. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of like outlined some of the quality standards that uh, the general standards that that we we want, professional standards, the. Uh, um, the quality standards and the ethical standards that people should really um, operate their business out of. And if you have that and you review it and the, that's a good guide on how to operate your business and what to look for when you're hiring um, people to help you as well. And I, I apologize for, get, for forgetting to mention that in the September, October issue of PI magazine, we have uh, spotlighted George and the, uh, the inspire association uh, in the uh, association spotlight of the magazine, so the listeners can read more about that when they receive that uh, 
copy of their subscribers. And all George's contact information will be in the uh, available in the show notes. George, we want to thank you very much. It's been great, and we always learn something. I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in this evening to PI Magazine, a podcast. I'd like to thank my co-host, Nicole Cusinelli, and, of course, our board operator, Detective Jack Russell. Remember, everybody, follow us on PIMagazine.com. And remember, stay professional and keep investigating. Thank you for joining us in this episode of PI Magazine, the podcast. Join us next week for a new and exciting show with your hosts and the publishers of PI Magazine, Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli. Remember to check out our guests and sponsors' websites to support those who support our profession. Visit PIMagazine.com for the latest links, conference updates, and professional news, and subscribe today. Thank you again, and remember, keep investigating.